Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Lisa. So we have interviewed CEOs before, but today's podcast is a little different. Um, Ben, can you just tell us a little about what we're going to listen to today? Uh, Sure. You know, uh, one of the critical parts of our process is engaging with management. And we do this prior to making every investment that we do at Pazina Investment Management, and as well as on an ongoing basis. The goal when speaking to the management is really to get an update on the business and to further our understanding of that business, as well as to retest our thesis, depending if something happens or, or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and most importantly, determining if there's going to be a need to change our normal earnings. Mm-hmm. Today, we're going to include all of you, the listeners, <clears throat> in an actual meeting we recently hosted in New York with the management of Lear. This is the senior management, both the CEO and the CFO attending. Like many of our companies, we have long-standing relationships as we've owned this since 2018 and have met with them on several occasions, actually more. We usually meet with managements around two times a year, live, that is. And for some context, uh, Lear is the world's largest uh, manufacturer of seating for cars, uh, supplying to virtually all the uh, uh, name brand automobile manufacturers. While seating makes up the bulk of Lear's businesses, they also have something else called, called e-systems, uh, which is a business that produces wiring harnesses, all the wiring that goes through cars, mm-hmm. as well as uh, what's called power electronics. Power electronics is mostly used uh, for electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. So the great thing about this business is when you think of seats, wiring harnesses, power electronics, this is something that we're indifferent for whether somebody buys an electric or an internal combustion engine car, they're going to sell something into that vehicle. This is a regular update meeting. The company has been dealing with lower volumes from the chip shortages that I'm sure most of you have uh, read about and maybe even experienced if you've tried to buy either a car or a home appliance, as well as the raw material inflation that has really pressured margins. Despite these near-term issues, we think that uh, Lear's long-term normalized earnings power Uh, remains the same, and on that basis, the stock is very compelling. So to recap quickly, this is a typical management meeting that our auto analyst, Andrew Chung, is hosting in our our office with two portfolio managers, both myself, uh, Ben Silver, and uh, Dan Babkus, and is typical of the hundreds of management meetings that we host as well as go to uh, throughout a year. As a firm, we believe in transparency, and we're really excited to share this experience with you today. So, Ben, is that fairly typical to have the analyst and two portfolio managers in the meeting? Uh, You know, actually, Lisa, it is. Uh, You know, obviously, most importantly, the analyst is driving this discussion. They're at the forefront of knowledge, uh, you know, in this company and about this business. And then we consider these meetings so important that we uh, think it's important that another person attend as well, uh, usually a portfolio manager. So, uh, if there's a different framing that needs to happen, that can occur there. But the, most importantly, it's when you have two people attending, at least two people attending a meeting, you'll really capture everything. And if there's some nuance, you can discuss it afterwards as well. So, yeah, it's pretty typical for us to have uh, uh, at least two people when we're having any discussions with management. 
So we've broken this meeting into three excerpts. Ben, can you tell us a little what uh, this first excerpt is about? Sure. We're going to uh, start the meeting by uh, talking about how Lear coped uh, through COVID-19 and the post-COVID-19 problems um, that they're running into, uh, both on the supply chain uh, problems that they have, as well as inflation, and how they're grappling with that and uh, what they're going to do in that in this situation. Yeah. Well, these are definitely topics that are on a lot of people's minds these days, so let's just jump right in. Great. I, I think our mindset has been, we've been in this for two years. Um, we, we believe that we have to continue to think like that. Listen, if it gets better, volumes go up, good. We're in a good shape. But right now, the steps we're taking is, let's just assume right now the world's going to continue at the pace we've been seeing. What can we do to control the things that are within our own um, house and be more efficient? And so there's been a lot of work going on. I think, you know, combining that with what we've done strategically, I think it does set us up well going forward. So with, um, with what you're doing in the plants, and you've always have to, had to operate with sort of an unknown in terms of what the actual volumes, you always had to make assumptions based on that. Um, but now coupled with, you know, labor shortages that, you, that you're seeing around the world, does that like reduce your flexibility in a sense that you don't wanna let these people go so quickly because ramping, finding new people and ramping up their experience gets even harder. Do you end up you know, running at a, a higher fixed cost than you ordinarily would? Could you talk about some of that dynamic? Yeah, that's exactly what is what we're running with right now, and that's that inconsistency of build. If uh, customers were run just a steady stream, one shift, one operation long-term, then we can flex our variable costs, which is some of that's the labor, within our facility. What we're doing right now is we've studied the capacity within our plants, and then we can utilize the labor across multiple products. That's what we did in South America, and it worked extremely well. So if one customer, one product goes down, you flex your labor to another product that's running in the plant. And so it isn't, you know, and we are evaluating the, the, the actual volume and where we believe volume is gonna be long-term, and we have a good idea. I mean, historically we understand what platforms are running and why they're running. And then, you know, really looking a little bit more strategically at where those platforms are going to go in the future, and then being able to flex that capital within the plant. And that, that's exactly the mindset that we have is, and we have the ability to create that environment across product lines, because typically we just have a trim plant. Trim would have cut and sew that would run for maybe multiple customers, but now we're taking a, a trim plant and you know, putting capacity in for a wiring plant and then cross-populating the labor force within that plant. So if a trim cell goes down, you can still use that labor to run another product line within the plant. And that flexibility is addressing the issue that you're talking about. And it gives us, I think, a, an advantage. In and I wouldn't say, you know, we have um, widespread issues with labor shortages, maybe in a, you know, a couple of pockets globally, but for the most part, um, you know, where we have a concentration of labor, Mexico and Morocco in particular, because we're the largest employer in automotive in those areas, we haven't had meaningful issues in, in attracting and retaining hourly employees there. So, so one question I have, I understand the integrated approach that you're taking now is, is helping you deal with the uneven volume ramps. 
what does this do to the end state economics of the business? So once we're not, we're no longer dealing with chip shortages, does this lower your unit cost when you get to the other side of a normal environment? If, if we're running at a higher rate and more consistent, absolutely. That's, that's, ex that's exactly the place we need to be. Um, and we should, from a contribution standpoint, start to see some nice tailwinds for a change. You know, what's happened with the industry is you go back to the peak volume in 2017, 93 and a half million units. And then you have new business that you've been awarded that you're capitalizing facilities for. We've effectively capitalized for something, you know, at 100 million units or beyond. So we can take capacity out now. And even if there's a strong recovery, still have ample capacity available to support that, that growth. Our utilization rates are well below what we'd ordinarily uh, be targeting for you know most of our businesses right now, so we've got to take some capacity out, and and then when volumes come back, yes, the the variable margin should be better, should be stronger, uh, as a result of um, the new cost structure you have in place. Is there a scenario that you're looking at where volumes? I mean, in the near term, we tip into a recession, volumes go down much further. Um, how, how are you planning for that scenario? I mean, we're, we're, you know us, we're value guys. We're always thinking the worst is going to happen, not the best, <laughs> right? So, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, that's that's kind of how we've been going at this. You know, we kind of have scenario A, B, C, and that's how we look at it. And so what we are looking at is a combination of different uh, abilities to get scale across different administrative roles where we can actually do some restructuring, still get the same efficiency. And what I talked about with the plants is really being able to flex those plants based on different volume scenarios. And, and you know, the way we're looking at it is this is going to be sustained for a period of time. And like I said, you know, planning for that. But, you know, if it does get better, then good. But, you know, one thing that's, that's we've talked about it is, you know, you have the headwinds right now of inflationary costs, you know, uh, transportation premium costs right now because lack of getting trucks, getting boats, getting planes. You have the headwinds of what we talked about with what is sticky labor where you're trying to manage a plant with inconsistent builds from your customer. And if there is a, if there is a downturn, um, I would assume that less products are required. So I would assume that we're gonna get some ability to get at supply, which has been a, a big headwind. I would assume that customers are going to start running more appropriately and smoother, which is a big headwind now. And those transportation premium costs and other issues that we're dealing with should mitigate. And so even though we're going to see a reduction in volume, I would think that we're going to see some relief in these areas that we've been struggling with for two years. And those would be a nice tailwind for a change. And so we're still planning for like I said, scenario A, B, C, and in the event, we should get some tailwinds that would just, I would assume would be natural, along with the efficiencies that we can run our plants at. And so, I mean, that, that's how we're looking at it. Um, well, I think I, what I would add too is, for us, it's more of a mixed risk than a volume risk. You know, if you look at how many units have been lost from, you know, you go back to the peak again, 93 and a half million units in 2017, if we would have, if the industry had run at that rate through 22, 60 million more vehicles would have been built globally. So there is still a tremendous pent up demand. And, but now with gas prices where they are, could that demand be fulfilled with a, you know, less rich mix than what we've enjoyed, particularly here in North America? That, that's a risk that 
you know, as, as Ray said, as we scenario plan that we're thinking about, could the T1 with GM run at a lower lower volume than what we've enjoyed over the last couple of years. I think that's a bigger uh, risk in the near term for us than outright volume reductions. So so let's yeah let's talk about that for a minute. So like when you're looking at your mix, I mean we were just doing some analysis here, and um, uh, you can you, you can have these. Uh, but what what we were trying to do is break out the difference between. Uh, the, the cause of mix on volumes and the cause of mix on features. So what I mean by that is, you know, somebody buys an SUV instead of buying a car, there's automatically going to be seven seats in that thing instead of five. Yeah. So that's your volume. So we just look at that as seat volume. But then there's the upsell, leather seats, all these other things, air conditioning, whatever else, uh, you know, is, is thrown into these seats nowadays. So when you, when you talk about mix, are you talking about those sort of features, fabrics, and other things that has much, much higher profitability? Or is it the mix that is really also talking about volume in a sense? Because an SUV just has more seats. So how, can you, can you yeah. maybe break those out? Yeah, the way we're thinking about it, when what I was just describing is more um, a consumer shifting from a seven row SUV to say, a, 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 or I'm sorry, a seven pass three row SUV to a, a two row five-pass SUV or CUV, say uh, someone going from a, um, you know, uh, a, an Explorer Aviator down to, you know, an Escape, or someone going from a um, Suburban down to uh, Equinox or Terrain. That's the type of mixed shift that, that we're anticipating as a result of higher gas prices. Or someone going from a full-size GM truck that has two rows of seats to a mid-size uh, GM truck. Um, and so, yes, there may be lo lower content in that midsize uh, vehicle, but oftentimes the features that come in those, um, those smaller CUVs and even the midsize pickups um, can be just as ample as what you see in a, a full-size truck. So we have the GMC um, and, and Chevrolet Canyon and, and uh, full-size GM pickup truck to a midsize. We've got both vehicles, and so we'll still... Um, we'll still benefit from that that shift, and, and the, the the content per vehicle differences are are not that uh, dramatic in that case. We wanted to talk about inflation. Um, where are you seeing the most cost pressure, and what kind of mechanisms do you have in place to really mitigate the cost increases that you've seen? Yeah, I mean the the most uh, the exposure we have in commodities is mostly around steel copper and leather hides. Those are our three biggest commodity exposures. And, you know, in the case of copper, 90, 95% of that's on a pass-through mechanism. And so there, there's limited impact um, on, on profitability. Steel, it's more in that sort of 80% or so range. And, and so um, in certain cases, we're, we're negotiating passing through what was non-contractual, um, you know, steel increases. Um, and then on leather hides, it's almost, you know, it's, again, it's 80-90% um, is on a mechanism or is negotiated based on an index. And so there's pretty good pass-through mechanisms in place for those three. Um, what's a little bit more difficult is, you know, foam chemicals, transportation, um, utility costs, labor inflation. You know, because historically those have not been been issues. There's been issues periodically with foam chemicals as it's you know, largely derived from crude oil. Uh, but in the other commodities, they've been pretty stable. And, and so there aren't the, the same um, mechanisms built in 
contractually to protect us, and so it's a negotiation. And, and so there's layers to the negotiation, and you know, some of it is absorbed by us, some of it's agreed to be reimbursed by the customer. And in other cases, we're working collaboratively to take cost out of the product and retain the savings as an offset, um, or they may allow us to, to not give them the same level of contractual price reduction that we otherwise would have owed them as an offset to that. So those are sort of the buckets that we uh, negotiate around. And so as we look you know, out next year and, and over the next two or three years, that's, that's the mechanism for recovering the balance of this. And, and we're, we're not gonna get 100% you know, uh, back of that. We've had $340 million of, of headwinds through the end of 22. Um, you know, but we can see a path to getting half of that uh, over the next couple of years, and that will be a nice margin tailwind. So, Ben, in this next section, you uh, you definitely dive deep and talking about their seating. What are you trying to accomplish with these questions? You know, Lisa, um, when we buy a business, uh, we are we look at ourselves as owners of the business. And we expect to be owning it for several years, uh, usually like three to five years. So we really want to understand the business and how it would operate under a lot of different circumstances because we're going to own it under a lot of different circumstances due to the length of time. So we want to really try to understand the competitive dynamic. We want to understand the current margin structure as well as what happens to the margin structure under different scenarios. And ultimately, we want to retest our thesis of what should this company earn in this business over the next three to five years, and is it in line uh, with what we thought originally, and has there been any change to our thesis? And that's really ultimately what we're trying to accomplish. So in order to do that, uh, it's really a question, it really, you, know, you really need to get into some of the details here of the structure of these things, how they make money, when they make money, what kind of seats they make more money on than others, and that's what we're trying to uh, reaffirm in terms of our understanding of the business. Great, all right, let's listen to it. So the level of vertical integration we have in seating gives us a unique opportunity too. So our expertise in fabric and foam and leather now in these thermal comfort products in addition to the structures, you know, the, the, the scale and, and total scope of ideas that we can generate for our customer through CTO, as Ray described, is, is not, you know, no one can match that. Uh, no one has the, the scale of capabilities that we have. Yeah. And that was, uniquely positions yeah, us. And that just, so I said in seating, seating components are 80% directed. And having that vertical integration, what we do is we build into the contract as we're quoting it, the ability to source ourselves. And that, that's really unique. And so the acquisition of Kongsberg, to Jason's point, and the most recent acquisition, IGB, gives us that thermal comfort management uh, capability. And so we just had two big contract awards with uh, two of our uh, bigger customers where we wrote in Learget's sourcing control of the thermal comfort management system. So now we have to deliver. I mean, it's, it's always focused on quality and, and the value proposition for your customer. But for the first time, and I think what we're seeing too is that ability to open up the bill of material. Because our customers are struggling with human capital resources, you know, uh, techno uh, technicians, with everything they have going and what's going on in the world. So the areas that they're looking to de-emphasize is like seating, for example. And so now we're starting to see 
our customers start to um, really consolidate what they have in-house as far as capabilities with engineering. Now we've gone through this cyclical upturn where we're a full service supplier and we have full control and then they take it back and then they go back because they think there's an advantage on cost. But then they, they're sophisticated enough where they know what the cost is. We can get a fair return and then they can go on without having to spend all their time in engineering and in some cases are the responsibility for around warranty and quality issues. Because when you have an integrator in there, you know, if there's a quality issue, there's a lot of this going on. And what happens too is it becomes very clean as the expert and we're responsible, but we also can vertically integrate our own components. And that's a very unique thing that's helped us out through this too, is that our ability to be able to source ourselves components when we get into some of these negotiations. And we're using it. And that helps when you have component suppliers in asking for pricing. When you have the option of just bringing that business in-house, you know, that certainly helps mitigate the risk. Yeah. So, so I guess just, just tying a couple of these points together. So what we've seen in the recent history has been shock on the cost side, downward shock on the volume side, and that's what's currently in the margin. I guess the third variable that can impact margin is the relative competitive position. And just to, to clarify, what I think I'm hearing is that's improved. So when we think about the margin rate and the earnings potential in the next three to five years, as those other two variables start to, to normalize, I would think we should expect a higher rate on the on the margin side and the earnings side. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, I mean, in seeding, we've talked about seven and a half to eight and a half percent, sort of the target range. With the acquisition of Kongsberg and if assuming IGB closes, structurally, those products have better margins than our seeding portfolio, particularly when you have synergies between the two and the synergies with our existing seed business. Um, and so we would expect to, to push the upper limit of that and, and beyond over time um, in terms of that historical margin range. Interesting. And the, the competitive landscape, I know one of the one of the bigger competitors, I think in the last business cycle, had a lot of financial leverage and was dealing with you know corporate spin out from from Johnson Controls. So you know some of the channel checks we'd heard is maybe the pricing behavior had gotten a little bit more aggressive. So it sounds like also what I'm, what I'm hearing is that's flipped the other direction now because of some of the cost. Yeah, yeah, they're a little yeah. more rational now. But we always have an irrational player. I mean, yeah, even in the <laughs> even the most recent time when we won all that conquest business and, and gained market share. You, you still have irrational players and you always will test it and then they'll regret it. And, you know, I, I think it, it boils down to, you know, we have a, and we protect this. It's at our DNA at the company is our operational excellence and that reputation around quality. We just got recognized by Stellantis for a, uh, a quality award across all their product lineups. And, and we were recognized for supplier of the year. And, and I think the biggest and, and the best thank you I get from the customers is new business wins. And we're growing faster than any other uh, seat company in the world with the best margins. And so it's that non and, and consistent uh, focus on making sure you're cost competitive, you're delivering the best quality product. You do things in a very respectful way and that vertical integration really helps us. And opening up these contracts where we can continue to source ourselves um, you know, products that are, are, are creative, that's, that's really what we're focused on. So in this next section, Ben, you start talking a lot about electrification in the auto industry. I know that as value investors, you get asked a lot about disruption and electrification is obviously the big disruption going on for autos. How is Lear taking advantage of that? 
Uh, it's a great it's a great question, Lisa. And uh, you know, one one of the th most interesting things about Lear is it really doesn't matter to them. Um, so on the seat, you need a seat, whether it's an electric car or it's a uh, internal combustion car. And then on their e systems, they're actually a leader in terms of having offerings in the power controls business for electrification. So, you know, they, they went through their businesses a number of years ago, and they really um, drove down to, to try to understand what are they really good at and where can they play. And they've made their investments in those places where they really have advantages. And they built a great business in power controls that is just dominant. They're deciding which clients they want to take. That's how dominant that business is. And so uh, we want to continue to understand what models they're getting priced on, how are they looking at that business, when does it get to scale, ultimately what it's going to earn. Mm -hmm. But the, the nice thing about it is, even if the adoption rate on electric vehicles is slower, it doesn't matter. They're still selling the wiring harnesses for, for, the, other, for the other businesses. Uh, the, the other parts that we're going to, to be speaking about in this section is also on ESG. Um, they, they remarkably went from being one of the worst rated companies to one of the best um, over just a couple of years. Wow. And that was, that's also part of our thesis. It's very important for these companies to understand this and to really uh, take this seriously and move in the right direction. And Lear has been a great example of that. All right. Well, let's hear it. So what electric vehicle products is Lear most excited about? I'd go with the battery disconnect for sure. That was something that we engineered and designed for General Motors. And, you know, obviously we compete against um, all the, you know, mega tiers and suppliers and they, they, they chose us because of our competencies and our capabilities. And if you think back, we've been in electrification for over 12 years now. We did the majority of the onboard charger, DC-DC uh, converters, high power wiring on the original Volt for General Motors. And so winning that was a really, really nice piece of business because it is integrated in the battery and it's very unique. And what's even special about that was we are awarded an internal award at General Motors that's very um, special that it, for the battery disconnect for their team and our team. And so the amount of work that went into that, and I remember through COVID that everybody was out of the office and our team was in just working day in, day in, day out on that, that program and we successfully launched it. I, I think the, the one that we can't talk about the customer, but the interconnect board. And I think the uniqueness about that is that these connectors get so sophisticated now. And you know we have had a relatively smaller business in T's and C's under the traditional um, setup of uh, low voltage. High voltage has kind of opened the door for us because the catalog that was already established in low voltage was 80% complete. You know, you just pick from a catalog. 80% of the new catalog is open. And so we won the plug board with Volkswagen. These, and we're going head to head with Aptiv and all these uh, uh, mega tiers. And we're winning uh, these very sophisticated connectors. And so I like the launch of the plug board that's going on right now because that's very similar to the battery disconnect unit where, you know, if we're successful, it's going across their whole platform because they're not going to risk a terminal connector of that significance within their electric vehicle program. And so the hope is invest very strategically, very selectively with the plan to go across multiple platforms within the customer. And the last one is this interconnect board. 
and we had the acquisition of M&N recently, and that was another focus of ours, how we build up engineered components and, and connectors. And it took the capabilities of M&N, which is the recent acquisition, across our seat house to structures because of the precision and accuracy that's required for structures to help with some of the sophistication of, of that interconnect board and our um, connectors business. It took that whole group and there's a very limited amount of suppliers that can produce the power to scale ratio that we can. So we were able to really, you know, uh, through technical reviews and obviously a coding process, win that business. And they're all really good margin and return type profile business for us. And so there's a number of things going on. And then just more of the traditional stuff of what we're seeing in high power is exciting. You know, we have a, a book, book of business or quoted activity right now of $2 billion in, you know, high power. That's exciting to me because we have traditionally won between 30 and 35% of what we target. How quickly does Lear see electric vehicle penetration rising? I think you look at IHS and, you know, we're not too far off of that. I think they have it at, what, 25% and 24% in 2026. I think the, the key question, though, is going to be around raw material um, and chip constraints and whether that slows things down. I think absent that, um, we're seeing, as Ray mentioned, an acceleration in the quote activity around electric, uh, electric vehicles with a $2 billion pipeline of business for quoting this year. So the OEM certainly want to achieve that and even more uh, if they could. I just don't know if there's enough you know, of the key raw materials to, to support that, that sharp of a ramp up, but we're, we're going to get there eventually, certainly. And you know, if you look out to 2030 and beyond, it's, it's going to be a dominant part of the market, I think. Um, so Lear's ESG rating has improved significantly over the past few years. How have you been able to accomplish this? Yeah, I, I think it's um, two issues. One, I think we got to get away from this humility and tell our story. I think we need to communicate more. I think, you know, typically we just are doing things that we never really did a, a good job of communicating. And you know, I'll give you an example. It's, it's amazing what we've done over the last two years. It's, uh, you know, we vaccinated down in Mexico 160,000 people. And, you know, and that was just, there wasn't, we didn't do it for ESG. We didn't do it for any other reason. We did it because that's who we are. It was something that we believe in. It was a time, particularly down in Mexico, that we needed to help others out. They couldn't, the queue system was failing. So, you know, the head of the president of Mexico asked me, listen, do you mind? We, we know how to get people through. And they actually took the idea that they had and how we are getting individuals through, the government did, and used it across the country. And those type of stories, I mean, we have once the playbook that we talked about that, you know, that was something we could have kept that internally as a, a competitive advantage, um, but not sharing it would have been the worst thing to do. And with sharing it, I believe save lives. And so, you know, on the social side, I think it was just telling our story a little bit, uh, you know, clearer and communicating it um, a little bit better. You know, on the environmental side, you know, again, there was a lot of good work that we're doing in Europe. There's a lot of good things we're doing, but we weren't ticking tying it out. And we weren't communicating all the work we were doing. So I think when, uh, the, you know, some of the agencies were looking at it, they just didn't know. And so you just get a score that isn't reflective of all the work you're doing. Um, and then the governance side, we do a great job on the governance side, and I think that just has to be communicated and is being communicated better. The second part of it is 
running it very similar to how we see our operations. You know, we've set, you know, on the envi environmental side, we've set up goals. And when you establish those goals for 2030, 2050, track it just like you track your operations. You know, what are we doing every single day to achieve what is the right thing to do? On the product side, again, we're doing a tremendous amount of work on the environmental. We have, right now, we're in late stages of development uh, project on foam. You know, I, I absolutely want to get away from TDI and MDI. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to announce this soon, but you know, that cuts down on uh, emissions by 50%. It cuts down the mass, and we believe it will eventually replace all TDI and MDI foam in vehicles going forward. It takes the equivalent of millions of vehicles off the road. So that isn't something the customer asks us to do. That's something that is who we are, what we think is the right thing to do, and getting away from some of these products that are in our plant that we don't want to produce. And uh, that will displace us too by the way, but it'll, I think it'll be a, a great business case when we get it going too. We're, we're not too far away from that. Same thing with sustainable materials within our textiles and other areas within in the seat. And then what we're doing within electrification. You know, we're continuing to help the environment out through some of the really good designs that we have within electrification. And, and so I think, like I said, one is communicating. We have our new sustainability report coming out that I think is even gonna do even more for us uh, because it's gonna really reflect those different three areas. It's part of our core. You know, we have the strategy around seating, the strategy around these systems, the operational excellence in Industry 4.0, and the last pillar is ESG. And I think that's just, you know, who we are and what we do. We're not gonna overshoot different areas. We think there's smart investments for the company that are, are aligned with who we are as a company, and those are gonna resonate well. And that second area is just doing a much better job like we do our operations. We went out and we benchmarked. We looked at every single company and said, what are they doing? And, you know, what should we be doing? And what makes sense for Lear? We brought in third parties to help kind of tie the, the ends together so that it, it fit better and then tracking it and making sure we're tracking from, you know, governance for all over governance. I think we're one of the best companies when we talk about governance. Social, that's just who we are. We got to do a better job of all the great things we're doing. Environmental. Those are things we're moving on with the targets we have, both for manufacturing and product. And so I think you're going to see this next sustainability report is even going to be much better than the last one. And then the last one, I think, really took everyone by surprise with everything we were already doing. It wasn't something we needed to do. Let's hurry up and get caught up. We just said, we're doing all these things. Let's just tell the story right. Well, Ben, I am so glad that Lear was open to sharing this meeting on our podcast. And I really think this is going to help our listeners understand this part of our research process. Uh, thank you, Lisa. And, you know, th this is what we do. And when we hire analysts, we want to hire people that this is the most exciting part of their job <laughs> is understanding the businesses and discussing with people that have been running these businesses their whole lives to get uh, even further understanding of how this works. And this is what we do. And it's funny because when we hire analysts and we give them a project, we say, this is what you're going to be doing for the next 20 or 30 years with your career at Pazina. That's what it is. So I, I really, uh, uh, you know, thank everybody for listening. I'm glad uh, that you did listen. And um, uh, this is just a pretty typical meeting of the hundreds of meetings that we have every year. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www 
www.pizena.com. That's www.pizena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. <laughs>